On January 19th, 2023, I had just returned from Israel and texted Mike O'Fallon, and I said something like this, quote, would a one-day conference that's fo- that is a focused critique of Christian nationalism be in order sometime soon? He replied, I think a two-day conference. And so the conversation started to make this event happen. Now, a month earlier in December, we had a conference and a panel discussion in Phoenix at Pastor John Benzinger's church. Uh, Pastor John is here and will be speaking in this conference. That conversation changed the direction of the larger conversation among thought leaders. The day after our panel discussion dropped on YouTube, identifying some of the epistemological foundations of the Christian nationalist movement, other ministries quickly announced conferences on these same themes, attempting to maintain control over the direction of the conversation on these vitally important topics. This topic is quite important to me personally as one who has studied these issues in an academic setting and from a historical angle and a theological angle, but it also matters to me as a pastor whose responsibility is to shepherd souls and to seek after those who are lost. My job as a pastor is not to seek the prosecution and execution of sinners and heretics, but to seek their conversion to faith in Christ, as well as the preservation of the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, even if these people do not become Christians. I've learned about these issues from an intellectual angle, but I've also seen it in practice in the church and society, like going to a laboratory after listening to a lecture. I've realized that ideas have consequences, and I know what these proposals will lead to. As a result, I have an obligation to stand up and to say something. By the way, I'm also addressing this, and we're also here today, because I can recognize a fed trap when I see one. I can see that this Christian nationalist project is the Christian version of January 6th. It is a false flag operation where members of the other team have picked up the Christian flag and are waving it and saying, let's storm the Capitol, we can take over. Let's abolish the Constitution. Let's break up the United States into many independent states with established churches in each state. Let's call for established churches. Let's call for theology police and blasphemy codes and speech codes and legal prohibitions on unapproved churches. I can see a trap when it comes up. I can see the danger in radicalizing half this country's conservatives into self-identifying with terms and labels and ideas which have been marked And they've marked themselves as domestic terrorists by following this Pied Piper's pipe dream. So this conference is our attempt to stand up and to do something. I hope this conference is helpful and I want to thank you up front for coming. So this brings me to this message, how to actually save the world. The message will have two points. The first is the false hope of Christian nationalism. The false hope of Christian nationalism. Uh, first off, you need to understand that Christian nationalism as a thing, as a term, it cannot be misrepresented. It cannot be misrepresented. So what I mean by that is you can ignore accusations of misrepresentation. If someone says, hey, are you a Christian nationalist? And you say, no, I'm not, and here's three reasons why. And then they say, oh, well, you're misrepresenting it. You can just say, no, I'm not but it doesn't matter because it's impossible to misrepresent this. And here's some reasons why. 
Well, first off, their goal in accusing you of misrepresentation is simply to silence you, and that's it. Same with accusing you of slander. This is the same tactic from the simple sabotage manual from the CIA, which says to haggle over precise wording in communication, to haggle over minutes, to haggle over resolutions. That's the goal, is just to throw a bunch of sand in the gears to keep things from happening. So you can ignore accusations of misrepresentation, ignore accusations of slander, because you cannot misrepresent them any more than you can misrepresent anything that has no meaningful definition. Some reasons why this cannot be misrepresented is, there are, yes, there is a statement on Christian nationalism, but that statement on Christian nationalism does not represent the mainstream version of Christian nationalism. The authors of the statement on Christian nationalism do not have the authority to speak on behalf of the group, and they only represent just a small section of the group. The statement on Christian nationalism does not represent the views of the original Christian nationalists. Groups who adopt the label differ widely in their ideology. There are many, many versions of Christian nationalism. So to restate this, yes, there has been an attempt to define the position by writing the statement on Christian nationalism, but that statement does not represent even some of the most popular mainstream versions of Christian nationalism, including that of Stephen Wolfe. Stephen Wolfe is the author of this book, which I have been suggested that I should hold it upside down so they don't turn me into a meme, but this is his book. This is the standard. Your new online website statement on Christian nationalism does not represent his position. He wrote his position long before the Baptists decided to adopt this project. So the writers and authors of the statement do not have the authority to speak on the behalf of the group, and they must solicit signatures from those who agree with them. Now let's talk for a very brief moment about three elements from the statement on Christian nationalism. First off, the definition of a nation. I find this wildly problematic. I'm not sure if I'm alone, but it says, we affirm that a nation is not merely an idea, abstract principle, or ideology, but it tangibly is defined by a particular body of people in a particular place. The key words there are people in place. Now that might not seem wildly problematic to you right now, but hopefully it will in about two minutes. People in place is very similar to blood and soil. In fact, it's the same thing. Blood and soil is a Nazi slogan. So let's say that you happen to be married to someone who is something other than white European. What if you wrote the statement on Christian nationalism and you're married to someone who is perhaps not white, but you wrote these words? My response is, get out of here with your Nazi rhetoric. Don't even think about sending me a private message or a text message saying, Andy, I'm very disappointed in you. You can't have both this statement that America is a people and a place and your so-called interracial marriage. Because either this nation is a people and a place or it represents an idea, an ideology that anyone is actually welcome to become an American, not just Europeans. Now, do I think that the writers of this statement are actually racist? 
No. But they have been caught up in something very bad, which includes racists, which is why they've adopted this language. Because the people that are coaching them, some of them are true racists. By the way, before we move on, you cannot have both theonomy and strong opposition to immigration. These simply don't work. They're incompatible. Why? Well, because the law of Moses was not a document that had these strong oppositions to immigration. You can't have people in place and have theonomy, in other words. The second thing I want to talk about is this middle column, a theonomic nation. This document is a theonomic document. We affirm that the Christian Nationalist Project entails national recognition of essential Christian orthodoxy, Article 2, as a Christian consensus under Jesus Christ, the supreme Lord and King of all creation, and the establishment of the general equity of the Ten Commandments as the foundational law of the nation. We affirm the responsibility of civil authorities to protect the soul, not to convert the soul. We deny that laws against public blasphemy, coercion, coerce conversion or hinder religious liberty in private. This statement on Christian nationalism is an overtly, explicitly theonomic statement. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you are a wonderfully blessed person, and I would encourage you to continue not knowing what this is talking about because it's a much more pleasant life. But if you do know what I'm talking about, you need to be aware that this document has baked into the DNA of the statement the foundational presupposition of theonomy. What happens if you're not a theonomist? There's also another problem, which is, well, the founder of this whole thing, this guy, is not a theonomist, so he claims. Claims not to be a presuppositionalist, claims a lot of things which they're they're contradicting each other within themselves. So you say this is not exclusively a theonomic project, but then you make these kind of statements in your project saying that it is theonomic. And then thirdly, let's talk about the blue state blues. We deny that pragmatism should be the driving force behind the decision-making of a Christian movement. Again, another controversy, which I hope you're not aware of, but if you are, I got into a dust-up over the last month or so over two different controversies involving one particular person. The first of which was addressing this man's call to Christians getting out of blue states and moving into red states. And he has called specifically for as much as 90% of Christians should move out of California. My response is that if 90% of Christians move out of California, then every church in the state of California is going to close. Which sounds like a strategy of Satan or as I called it, a doctrine of demons. This is an idea that Satan would think up. Hey, let's close all of the churches in entire regions of the country. How about New England? Let's get all the churches out of there. How about California? How about New York? Well, that's something Satan would like. But the statement says, we deny that pragmatism should be the driving force behind the decision-making of a Christian movement. Within that whole debate, there was this stepping back and saying, wait a second, it's time for Christians to think strategically. It's time for Christians to think practically. And and we need to make these strategies to take back our country by moving the however many million Christians from California and distributing them into Georgia and Wisconsin and these other states in order to win the next election. We must think practically here. Well, that's called pragmatism. And your statement that you helped edit says that Christians should not be thinking 
and being driven by pragmatism, but instead should be driven by principles or theology or things like that. So let's keep moving. Um, There are different versions of Christian nationalism. Stephen Wolf, in his book, which I keep holding up, says, Arch heretics are publicly persistent in their damnable error and actively seek to convince others of this error, to subvert the established church. So he's assuming an established church, not a free society, free churches, but established state churches, to denounce its ministers or to instigate rebellion against magistrates. For these reasons, they can be justifiably put to death. Case for Christian nationalism, page 391. There are different versions of Christian nationalism. There are versions that would say, um, I believe that blasphemers and heretics should be executed. I believe we should abolish the Constitution, get rid of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, women's right to vote, and, um, oh, let's abolish the 13th Amendment too, by the way, and reinstitute slavery. There are people advocating for that who call themselves Christian nationalists. This is why I'm saying you cannot misrepresent them. It it goes as far as the furthest thing you could imagine, and then it also goes to the most neutral, benign things, such as, oh, well, I'm a Christian nationalist because I'm a Christian and I love America. There's this this incredible range. There are people saying, well, when we take over America, atheists will be forced, converted, and then executed after they are forced to admit Jesus Christ is Lord. That's a winning strategy. So I've retitled point one, The False Hope of Christian Authoritarianism. Because that's what this is. It's not Christian nationalism, it's Christian authoritarianism. Christian nationalists have a lust for power. They might respond, well, someone has to have the power, it might as well be us. One problem that I can already think of is that your group already has neo-Confederates in it and anti-Semites and white nationalists and a whole bunch of feds spurring this on, throwing cash their way, saying, keep going, keep going. The same way they did at January 6th. What could possibly go wrong? This Christian nationalist project is not fundamentally about Christianity, but a false hope of Political power, which is in fact just authoritarianism. Wolf also says, which by the way, there's such great irony in last names these days. By granting religious liberty to all Orthodox Christians, if deemed suitable, would effectively end dissension, as I've defined it and create a sort of pan-Protestant civil society. This is precisely what I hope for future arrangements in North America. Still, there are times when establishment is necessary and good. So he's hoping for a pan-Protestantism, but then also there might be time for an established church as well, which is a more specific, more particular version of Protestantism, such as Presbyterianism or Anglicanism or some other group. So I just inserted these quotes to help you understand that this is a real idea that's being put out there, and this is the foremost leader, the thought leader of of the movement. Um, Let's talk briefly about loser eschatology and boomer theology. 
So there is a modern version of postmillennialism. In recent days, a modern version of postmillennialism has become extremely popular. Please make no mistake about it. This version of postmillennialism, which is theonomic postmillennialism, and again, if you don't know what that is, you are a blessed person. But theonomic postmillennialism is to traditional postmillennialism what John Nelson Darby was to chiliasm or historic premillennialism. Again, if you don't, don't wanna, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But if you do know what I'm talking about, you need to understand that John Nelson Darby had this new idea which took the same word premillennialism that had existed for 2,000 years or the same concept and then rebranded it taking that same label. Well, that's what theonomic postmillennialism has done to traditional postmillennialism, and then they pull everyone who has ever been postmillennial throughout history and say, oh, look, they're on our team, when in fact they might be extremely different. The reason for doing this is to gain credibility for something new and novel, while also attacking other positions. Um... Boomer theology. This is the Theobro version of OK Boomer. OK Boomer is an expression used to criticize and silence people that you don't like who are coming up with things that are older and not as cool as you. So this, what I'm calling a Theobro version of OK Boomer is just saying, oh, well, that's Boomer theology. is used to silence someone who is saying something that you don't like. In this case, the one saying it is a millennial who feels like they suddenly don't need to honor their mother and father, which is, by the way, one of the commandments, which the namas part of theonomy requires and would have you executed for not doing. You're dishonoring your mother and father. Okay, we'll take you out behind the barn and shoot you. But instead, you have the audacity to say you have boomer theology. To disrespect your elders, to mock them in this way, while calling yourself a theonomist? This is insanity. They don't need to speak respectfully to those who are older than them. So they're using a generational label as an insult. Um, pietism. Pietism is another word that's, that's thrown as an accusation. It's anything that's focused on conversion and salvation instead of prioritizing the culture wars. Jacob Spenner, who's that? Never heard of him. Why? Because, well, we didn't actually study anything. We've just been reading memes and blogs. We've got an empire to build, and we're going to build our empire by retreating and withdrawing into cloistered communities. Well, Jacob Spenner was actually the founder of German pietism and the author of a book called um, Holy Desires, uh, Pia Desideria. Pietism was a separatist movement in the Lutheran church seeking holiness and renewal through separation from the world. So let me assure you that withdrawing from society is actually not going to redeem society. While this is the new strategy of the theonomic postmillennialists, I can assure you that it is not a new strategy. It's been tried before, and it doesn't work. Yes, there is a degree to which you need to shelter and protect your kids, but sheltering and protecting your kids does not have a one-to-one -one ratio of saving them or keeping them or preventing them from coming out of the closet as soon as they first have the opportunity. 
I went to the flagship school of the movement known as fundamentalism, and the amount of kids, the number of kids who came out as gay the moment they graduated from college, because they were forced to go there, they were sent by their parents, they had no other option, so they walked the straight and narrow, sort of, while they were in college, and then they graduate, and now they come out as gay. And it's a shocking number, including students from the ministry class, from the music department, from the seminary. Pietism is not the answer. It's not the solution. And then accusing your opponents of it is also extremely dishonest, which is also one of the Ten Commandments, which also carries with it very stern penalties under the theonomic system. Um, Here's a quote. As we disciple the nations, Matthew 28, our weapons for doing so are word and water, bread and wine. These are the instruments we are to use in order to make the obedience of the nations complete. These are our assigned weapons for the gospel era. Sounds like pietism, right? Definitely a pietist with loser eschatology. Let me assure you that if someone said this who came from outside of the Christian nationalist camp, he would certainly be marked as a pietist with loser eschatology. But in fact, this quote is from a man named Doug Wilson in his book, Mere Christendom. What you find as you're reading through this book or listening to these people is that there's an enormous amount of double talk where they'll say one thing, then they'll say something else that contradicts it, the exact opposite, just pages later. The accusation that these and many people give is that classical liberals don't have a plan. Just to be clear, classical liberalism is not the same thing as the modern concept or the the street lingo of, oh, he's a liberal. Classical liberalism is the idea of freedom and liberty, constitutionally protected rights. It's not the same thing as leftism. So the accusation from the Christian nationalists, from the theonomists, from the postmillennialists, from all these people is, well, you don't have a plan. At least we have a plan. At least we have a solution to all of the societal decay. We have a solution to trans story hour. All that you have is just vote harder. Well, is that so? Is it true that we don't have a plan? Is it true that the constitutional conservative doesn't have a plan? Well, I suppose it depends on what kind of plan you're talking about. Because we do, in fact, have a plan to limit tyranny and to allow freedom of worship and freedom of speech and the right to private property. We have a plan, and it's called the Constitution. It's called Christian faithfulness. But do we have a plan to usher in the eschaton? Do we have a plan to usher in the kingdom of God on the earth and to make Jesus reign here, now, under our fist as his rod of iron is our sword or gun? Is that what we're attempting? Well, no. But I would also venture to say, neither do you, the Christian nationalist. You do not have a plan to accomplish what you are talking about. Again, Stephen Wolf's book, page 396, he says, this chapter is an outline of principles, not a blueprint for action. Why? Because he doesn't have a blueprint for action, because there is no blueprint for action, because this will not work. By the way, it was never intended to work. 
It was only intended to lure about half of half the country off into a pipe dream to get them marked on a no-fly list by the FBI, to radicalize them into insane ideas. He goes on, this follows my principle throughout this work, that each group, each people group, must decide for themselves how they will govern and arrange themselves. My response to Mr. Wolf the Greater, as Dr. Lindsay has coined the term, my response to Stephen Wolf is, we've already done this that each people group should decide for themselves how they govern and arrange themselves. We've done this already, and it is called the Constitution. So we don't need to refound this country. We don't need a new founding. We don't need to reconstitute things. We need to actually just stick with what we've got and keep the main thing the main thing. So this brings me then into point two, the second half of my message. Because again, the title is How to Actually Save the World. Well, you need to understand this paradigm, and that is the paradigm of the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. In a a topical talk like this, where you could really go any particular direction, I asked a friend what, what I should do with this, and it was suggested that this paradigm is perhaps the strongest argument against the Christian nationalist movement, and that is with the traditional historical paradigm of the theology of glory versus theology of the cross. This is a thing. I'm not making this up. Theology of glory. Theology of glory is built on an over-realized eschatology. Kingdom now. Requires word games and double talk. But there's nuance. There's nuance. You need to remember my nuance and my context. Oh, because you're lying? Theology of glory is karma theology. If you do the right thing, you will get the right outcome. Well, not necessarily. I just saw saw a post on Instagram yesterday from Doug Wilson, who is the granddaddy of this movement in some ways, um, from his book called Standing on the Promises, which is tied to his federal vision theology, which is the idea of... um, of a Catholic concept of salvation, of, of your children being baptized and kind of saved by that baptism and then kept saved by faithfulness. And he said in that sequence of images posted on their Instagram account that um, when a child rejects the faith and the parents say, well, we did all we could, the gist of his 10 slides was, well, no, you didn't because your kid is this way because of your failure. It's your fault that they're gay. It's your fault that they're not a Christian. It's your fault that things didn't turn out the way you had hoped because you just didn't do the right thing enough. Now, this is my summary. He didn't say it like this. He said it in a much more long-winded way. But then he tried to to give you some salve for your conscience at the end by saying, oh, but there's forgiveness in Christ. Didn't help the fact that he walked you out on this bridge and then shoved you off. Because at the end of the day, this is a theology of glory. It's a karma theology. If you do this, you will get that for the outcome. Well, not necessarily. Theology of glory is also built on escapism and pietism. We're trying to escape the bad. We're trying to escape this world. We're trying to escape our present reality. 
We're trying to withdraw from the world and withdraw from the problems. Let's chop up the country into a whole bunch of smaller subgroups and balkanize it and make it like the Baptists get this state and the Presbyterians get that state and the Methodists, well, there, are there any Methodist Christians? I don't know. And then the liberals, well, they get California and New York and by liberal we mean leftists, that sort of thing. Theology of glory is also a power of positive thinking. Who, by the way, Norman Vincent Peale was a post-millennialist. Theology of glory is rationalism, moralism, triumphalism. The response to me criticizing a kingdom now eschatology, they might say, well, the Lord says in his Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're here to make that happen. And I would say, yeah, I'm glad you can read. But that's not the question. The question is not whether or not the Bible says that. It's what does that mean? And I don't think it means what you're saying that it means. On this rationalism, moralism, and triumphalism, one theologian outlines it this way. That rationalism is what makes sense to the natural mind. For example, here's five steps to take back America. First, we need to separate from the world. Let's all move to red states. Let's get a certain number of people to move to Georgia so that we can swing that back. You have your rational plan. Secondly, moralism. Here's our formula to earn God's favor. Well, America is a mess because the church hasn't had the right theology. As my cousin who's here, he says... Um, I wish someday that I would hate my sin as much as the post-millennialist hates dispensationalism. They literally say that certain places are in the condition that they're in, such as America, because of dispensational theology. And I would just like to introduce you to the moral majority, or Jerry Falwell, or these men who were dispensationalists, and they were very civically involved. This doesn't pass the sniff test. It's a lie. Our country is not in the condition that it's in because 40 years ago, some people were, a lot of people were dispensationalists. That has nothing to do with it. But in your moralistic framework, you would say, well, if we had the right theology, then America wouldn't be in the condition that we're in. Or if we just did more and tried harder, then there wouldn't be these problems. You hear a lot of this in the anti-abortion community, which I'm involved in that. I'm involved in anti-abortion ministry. But they would say, well, the reason why Planned Parenthood exists is because the church has allowed it. That's a strong accusation against the bride of Christ. And Jesus loves his church. And Jesus so identifies with his church that to lie to the church, he interprets in the book of Acts as lying to him. So much so that when Ananias and Sapphira did it, they lied to the church. God struck them dead. When you accuse the church, you've taken the side of Satan. I would be very cautious about protesting some of the most solid churches in the country, which these people do. They'll take graphic signs and stand out in front of churches and say, your church needs to repent because you're not political enough. And I'm talking about pretty political churches, pretty right-wing churches. But they're not enough. Thirdly, well, the reason why they're not enough is because they haven't adopted this theology of glory mindset of the triumphalism. 
Dominionism. Triumphalism is a plan for dominion in this life. In other words, we win down here. And that's the problem with the scenario I just described, including the church I just talked about. There's this man named John MacArthur in California who has a very famous clip going around that says, we lose down here. And this makes the Christian nationalists very angry. They say, no, we don't. We win down here. To which I would say, well, what exactly? And how's that going for you? Now, back to the power of positive thinking. Believe in yourself. Have faith in your abilities. Without a humble but reasonable confidence in your own powers, you cannot be successful or happy. But with sound self-confidence, you can succeed. A sense of inferiority and inadequacy interferes with the attainment of your hopes. But self-confidence leads to self-realization and successful achievement. By the way, this guy was a pastor in New York City on 29th Street and 5th Avenue, not that far from where I live. A statue of him still stands outside their church. He's the author, Norman Vincent Peale, of The Power of Positive Thinking. And I'm here to tell you today that the modern post-millennial Christian nationalist theonomic movement is a power of positive thinking movement. If only we were more optimistic, we would be taking over this world. The reason we haven't is because we think that we lose down here. But instead, if you just thought we win down here, then we would be winning. Welcome to the power of positive thinking. Which is honestly not that much different from manifesting things. You know, the new age concept of you just like look in the mirror and you say, I am healthy, I am wealthy, I am rich. This is not Christian, by the way. Here's some biblical examples of the theology of glory from the book of 1 Samuel. There's several examples. You can find them all throughout the Bible, but here's just a few, and if you want to keep it simple, stick to the book of 1 Samuel. So, Israel demands a king. Why do they want a king? To be like the other nations. Which king do they want? We want someone who's tall. Why? Because... We want someone who's a head taller. We want someone who's strong and handsome. We want Saul. Give us Saul. David? No, 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 no. He's too small. He's short. He's, let's over, no. He's young. He's got these taller brothers. How about them? This is the natural way the unbeliever thinks. We think and we look with our eyes. remind you the words from 1 Samuel 16 do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature the Lord said because I have rejected this one the Lord sees not as man sees man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart remember David and Saul's armor the theology of glory says well if you're going to fight the giant you got to come in with your big weapons. If you're going to beat the giant, you need to be stacked. You've got to have the full array of human strength in order to beat him. The question, by the way, is not whether or not it is God's will to see the reign of God on the earth realized. The answer is obviously, plainly, yes, yes. It is God's desire that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Yes, I can read the Bible. So can you. So can all of us, hopefully. But that's not the question. 
There's a bunch of questions, and I've just listed off a few of them. For example, well, actually, what is the kingdom of God? Not does God want his kingdom advanced. This is part of the deception that is part of the DNA of the Christian nationalist movement. Why, what do you mean? Well, it's lying. They say, well, we want the kingdom of God, and you don't. No, that's not it. The question here is, what is the nature of the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Christian nationalism fundamentally blurs the line between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Sometimes they'll even be open enough to say that. Yeah, we're not two kingdoms, we're one kingdom. And then they'll insert a ripped out of context, Kyperian quote about all of the world is mine. Second question is, who is a member of the kingdom? Does mere citizenship in a nation render one as a citizen of the kingdom of God? Is America the kingdom of God? They wouldn't usually say that, but that is the logical implication of their actions and what they're teaching, as well as the one kingdom concept that, yeah, this is the kingdom of God. Another question would be, how does one enter the kingdom of God? Do you enter the kingdom of God through baptism, through church membership, through civil obedience? Are you a member of the kingdom because you're a member of the city or because your parents sprinkled you? What if you don't want to be? Oh, that's why we take you out behind the barn and shoot you. That's how we can usher in the kingdom. We, we kill all the non-kingdom citizens. Oh, I didn't know that was your prerogative. Number four, must one be regenerated to enter the kingdom? That's a huge question. If this is the kingdom where we're building the kingdom, do you have to be, actually be a Christian to be part of the kingdom? Is the kingdom of God even Christian at all? For those seeking to rebuild Christendom, that's a very important, very relevant question because there, frankly, is a lot of Christendom that wasn't regenerate, wasn't Christian. And then another question is, how does the kingdom spread? Does the kingdom of God spread through civic decree? If only we had that Christian prince, it's going to be addressed later. If only we had a Christian ruler. Don't get me wrong, I voted for Donald Trump. Probably will again. I don't know. That's what it looks like at this point. But that man is not a Christian prince. He's not a Christian ruler. And neither is the second, third, or fourth, or fifth option that's going to come up. The kingdom of God does not spread through civic decree. It does not come through national borders either. And it certainly doesn't come through wars and conquest. And it doesn't come through human reproduction either. As much as these people want to say that it does, that's not building the kingdom. By the way, if you enter the kingdom through baptism and regeneration is not really necessary, why would you, Christian nationalists, stand against countless millions of Roman Catholics who have been baptized as infants? Now, this is part of the issue with the definition of Christian nationalism. It's so broad and it's so undefined that, yeah, there are Catholic Christian nationalists. There's also Jewish Christian nationalists. They're not Christian and then this pan-Protestant Christian nationalism project that Stephen Wolf is advocating for, by definition, doesn't allow for Roman Catholics, but I know that they would allow for Roman Catholics, sort of, but not according to the definition. So, if the kingdom of God isn't spreading through these civic decrees, national borders, wars and conquest and human reproduction, then how does it spread? Well, I would think that it spreads through people actually being converted, people believing in Jesus, believing the gospel, being born again. But what if that's pietism? 
What if that's, uh, oh, you're too focused on the soul and you're not focused enough on the, the brick and mortar? Well, again, in steps our friendly Christian nationalists saying, well, evangelism is an idol. We should stop prioritizing that. We should stop talking about that. Let's, let's, let's downplay that because the evangelical church has made an idol of evangelism. Oh, by the way, here's my 32-part nuance bro on what I just said. And then I'll accuse you of taking me out of context and distorting me and slandering me, et cetera, et cetera. The name of the game, by the way, is to make a false statement and then cry nuance and context when confronted. And prominent Christian nationalists are making names for themselves by doing this. Sometimes they even admit that what they're doing is playing the Mott and Bailey. If you don't know what the Mott and Bailey is, you need to know that. So look that up and it'll be on Mike or James's website. Mott and Bailey is this word game between where you push forward on one side and then you withdraw back to a safe, defensible position and you just, you're playing word games with people. You're lying to people. You're deceiving them. At its core, Christian nationalism can justifiably be called a theology of glory that seeks to build the kingdom of God on the earth without necessarily requiring gospel preaching or conversion. Its central focus is morality, power, and politics, none of which are actually overtly Christian. When we're talking about the Christian nationalist morality, what are we even talking about? It always goes back to the Ten Commandments. Surprise, Ten Commandments are not overtly Christian. It's the law, not the gospel. So at least have the integrity to say that your Christian nationalist project is, is Judeo-Christian not just Christian Christian. The problem is you got all these raging anti-Semites in the Christian nationalist movement. The morality that's being advocated is not explicitly Christian. The politics that are being advocated are not explicitly Christian. And the power that's being advocated for is not Christian either. So let's talk briefly about theology of the cross. Uh, Martin Luther coined the term during his Heidelberg Disputation in 1518, which was a year after the door incident, you know, with nailing the 95 Theses in 1517. There's a bunch of points on his Heidelberg Disputation, but one of them is this, that a theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. At its core, the theology of the cross is the sum of the entire Christian life. It is by grace through faith. The theology of glory versus the theology of the cross is ultimately grace versus works. When we talk about theology of glory, we don't mean glory to God. We mean human glory. We mean an up and to the right increase in wealth, power, control, authoritarianism versus the way of the cross. Here's some biblical examples of the theology of the cross. Gideon's army started with 32,000 soldiers, was cut down and again and again, reduced to 300 men. Why? So that God alone would receive the glory. Think about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul was given a physical affliction to keep him humble. Why? Because he had been given such tremendous privilege. He'd been given such tremendous access to God. He had visions of God, really, truly. And so to keep him humble, to keep him from being inflated in his pride and ego, Paul gave him this affliction. We'll talk about that in a moment. Another example of the theology of the cross is Jesus' birth. If you were going to save the birth, what kind of, say, if you were going to save the world, what kind of savior would you send? Would the savior be born of a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem? Bethlehem, the small little town 
that's on the outskirts of the real town, Jerusalem. A savior born in a stable to a young girl who is of no prominence. No, a theology of glory would say we need the top kind of leader. We need, a, we need a, a savior like Saul. And last and most importantly, the theology of the cross comes from Jesus' death itself, which is that the, this rescue, this liberation, this redemption actually comes through death. Jesus' death, the king of glory dying, the greatest man who ever was, the son of God, the savior of the world, this second person of the Trinity would actually die on the cross. He would surrender. He would submit to the hands of murderers and die. But then he would rise. Rather than invading with armies and just doing a bloodbath and saying, hey, I'm here now, kingdom now, time to build. By the way, something I should have said two slides ago, just to be clear, calling Christian nationalism a theology of glory and calling it anti-Christian or sub-Christian is not calling all of those who hold to Christian nationalism non-Christians. I am not calling all Christian nationalists non-Christians. I am not saying Christian nationalists aren't saved. Though certainly... Some are not saved, but what I'm saying is that as a system, it is a system which is at war with the true nature of the gospel. It is at war with the true church, and it is at war with the real kingdom of God, and that Christian nationalism is no more Christian than Christian Maoism is Christian. Then, theology of the cross, then, up to where we are right now. Gideon's army, one more thing I should have said, is that in Gideon's army, he had 32,000 men, which was reduced to 300 men, but he was fighting against an army of 135,000, which, by the way, 135,000 versus 300 is, James, do you know how many that is, like the ratio? It's 450 to 1. So imagine with me that you are playing football, that you are on the field of an NFL field, and you, your team is you. One, one person, and the other team is 450, and you're trying to get that ball to the end zone, and there's 450 people in your way. These are not good odds. You're not going to win. That's what God reduced the odds to with Gideon's army. Why? So that he would be the one who receives the glory. This is the fundamental nature of the entire religion of Christianity. That God sees people who are strong and mighty and powerful and they're full of it. And he says, no, you're a little too strong for me. Let's weaken you. Let's bring you down a little bit. There's a very famous poem in this book called The Valley of Vision, which is Puritan Prayers. Uh, it's a prayer about paradox. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but I see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul. 
That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. Deepest wells. And the deeper the well, the brighter the stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Or the words from Paul in his reference to the thorn in the flesh, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What does that mean? That means if you don't have weakness, if you're doing this in your own strength, you're not going to get the power of Christ which is what I'm seeing in this entire Christian nationalist project, that is that it is built on the arm of the flesh. Which is the reason why it's built on a bunch of Catholic and Jewish philosophers and theologians. Because they're not working with Christ and his power. This is the reason why they're saying, oh, we need to get rid of the post-war consensus. We need to return to a pre-World War II philosophy that, frankly, we think Hitler got a lot of things right and we need to stop being so nice all the time and we need to implement authoritarianism. We need to implement these strong passions, the strong gods is what they call them. Stop being so nice. Stop committing not to nuke each other, but instead we need to go to war, literally to have this country as a Christian nation. This all stands in contrast to the law and the gospel. Now, I'm not saying these people don't claim to have law and gospel. They do. They have it. It's written on their, it's, it's written on their statements. But I'm saying that it actually stands in contrast to the theology, of the, glory, theology of glory. And it is a contradiction within itself. It is a contradiction in what they're saying and what they're teaching. The law is the law of God when rightly taught and rightly Applied exposes our utter sinfulness and helplessness. It exposes every one of us as sinful and desperately need, needing a savior. And then the gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done to reconcile sinners to himself. What has he done? Well, Jesus was incarnate. He's a real person. He's not a, a mythical figure, but he was a real person. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, came into the world, was incarnate, enfleshed. He lived among us a sinless life, perfectly obeyed the law of God in our place, then went to the cross and died as a substitute, and then on the third day he rose. And he did all of that to reconcile sinners to himself by his life, death, and resurrection. This is the law gospel paradigm. And it stands in contrast to, in opposition to, outside of, and hostile to the theology of glory. Rightly handling the law is not in accord with rationalism. Your theology of glory says, yeah, we can do this. We can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can make America this kingdom of God. The 
This rationalism would say that, well, if you just rightly preach and teach the law of God, we can get our country right with God. You just have to obey the law, the law of God. This kind of lingo is all over Reformed Christian Twitter right now. Rightly handling the law is also not in accord with moralism. Moralism says, hey, here's a way to be made right with God by your behavior. But actually, rightly understanding the law shows you that you are not and cannot be made right with God by your behavior. Not only are your actions corrupt, but your motives are corrupt as well. Your sin is not skin deep, but rather runs clear to the bone or actually to your heart. By the way, rightly handling the law of God is also not in accord with triumphalism. The nation of Israel had prophets, priests, and kings, yet the entire story of the Old Testament is one continuous story of prophets, priests, and kings all rebelling against God and failing God's standard and disobeying him. But you think you're going to do it better. True theonomy has never been tried. We'll, we'll do it better this time. Okay. We'll see how that works. From the Garden of Eden to post-exilic prophets, you see again and again and again, not a story of people making improvement, but of radically wicked people chosen by God according to his mercy and relentlessly called to repent again and again and again by prophets sent by God. And what do you see? Well, they usually kill the prophets. So then you need Jesus to come in as the perfect prophet, priest, and king. And what do they do to him? They kill him too. Then what happens next? Well, he rises from the dead. And today his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that we don't see through certain governments or through brick-and-mortar institutions. Not even those early American institutions which were built by some post-millennial Puritans who were saying they're going to build America as a city on a hill. Well, those institutions, such as the Ivy League schools, were all lost to apostasy within one generation. And now they are synagogues of Satan. They are not the kingdom of God on the earth. They are training priests of Baal. The gospel tells us the good news is that Jesus has reconciled sinners to himself by his sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection in their place. The gospel tells us that true wisdom, true knowledge, and true understanding is ultimately found in the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. It also tells us that Jesus, it tells us not only what Jesus teaches about morality and shows us a path to morality, but it shows us that Jesus is our substitute due to our immorality. That Jesus looks on us in pity and our attempting to contrive a path to perfection. And Jesus says to us, hey guys, I already handled that for you through my life, death, and resurrection. The gospel tells us that Jesus himself will exercise dominion on the earth. Him, not you and me. That Jesus will have dominion on the earth. Not in this exclusively spiritualized way, which he does truly reign in, in a spiritualized way, in his, the hearts of his people through his word and spirit in the church. But the Bible also tells us that the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout and he will reign on the earth, truly, actually, and he will actually reign triumphant in power and glory. Now, let's consider a few points of application, how to actually save the world. Number one, recognize that it's not too late to repent. So you may be here today and you're not a Christian and I would extend the offer that Jesus gives to you. You can trust Christ. You can be forgiven of your sins. But beyond that, 
If you have been lured into Christian nationalism, you've been lured into authoritarian Christianity or a theology of glory, it's not too late for you to repent and for you to, to come back across the bridge, to walk back to the land of sanity and biblical thinking and realism instead of idealism. And if you were lured into the woke movement, I'm sure none of y'all were, but there's lots of people out there that were, that were captivated by these ideas of critical race theory. And you used to have very effective ministries, but then your friends introduced you to critical theorists. And that corrupted your entire organization and your entire ministry has now been, been sucked down the drain into this insanity. It is not too late for you to repent. And I mean that, including Nine Marks Ministries, Mark Dever and your whole team. It is not too late to repent. And frankly, you could be quite helpful in standing against Christian authoritarianism. But unfortunately, your entire ministry has been wrecked by this woke agenda. So if you have wandered off into the wilderness of insanity, please come back. Jesus has died for these sins too. You can be forgiven for these sins as well, whether it be at Christian authoritarianism or just authoritarianism in general or the insanity of wokeness. You can be forgiven. Now, secondly, a word of application for us is to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and to recognize that God actually raises up rulers and he lowers them down. And we might think that we have a lot of control over these things, but the Bible says, Blessed be the name of the God. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Number three, put no confidence in princes. It's a shame to me that all of these so-called psalm-singing reformed Presbyterians who have now adopted Christian nationalism, they're singing this psalm in their churches, but they are doing the very opposite of it. Psalm 146.3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Number four, trust wholly, completely in the Lord our God, Psalm 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Number five, do not despise the little things. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. 1 Samuel 14, 6 says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Number six, clearly, boldly speak the truth. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statements of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. God's people are people of the truth. So we speak plain truth. We're not lying or deceiving or twisting words. And then number seven, confront evil in the camp when necessary. First Corinthians 5.12 says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. We need to deal with 
things in-house. We need to deal with the problems that are within the camp. And this is the reason why I've given more attention to this in the last month or so. Because until this Christian nationalist project blew up, the people that have identified with it were my people. That was my side. Those were my guys who I listened to their podcast on a nearly daily basis. But now they've followed down this path to tyranny and destruction. And so we need to say something. We need to stand up. We need to resist it. So in conclusion, please remember, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Thank you.